So this morning we're continuing our study on Proverbs. And the, the, the big question that we've been sort of chasing, asking ourselves uh, throughout this semester is, uh, how is it that we grow to become men who are wise? And one of the things that Proverbs assumes is this doesn't just sort of happen. You don't, like, wisdom doesn't just come because you age. It's not just experience. <laughs> um, wisdom is skill. It's learned. It's skill in the art of godly living. And what we've been doing is sort of tracing that definition through different pain points or practical points of our lives as men. There's a lot of different ways to do that in the Proverbs, a lot of different subjects. Some of the biggest ones are our finances, how we handle money. We've done that a little bit. Um, relationships. Uh, we looked last week, or Paul looked last week at a marriage, relationship between a husband and a wife. Uh, this week, we're going to trace that particular question um, through what the Proverbs has to say about fatherhood, about parenting. Uh, just by a show of hands, how many of you are fathers? Okay, so great majority. How many of you have uh, kids who are still at home? Okay, so about half. That, that gets about half. I saw some older men laugh and raise their hands like they weren't proud of that, but uh, that, that's the definition. So... Um, so for some of you this morning uh, who are like me, uh, practically speaking, this is blatantly obvious. Like, you just need help. Everybody needs help parenting. You need uh, practical help with the reality when you get home this afternoon. You'll have uh, kids there. For those of you who don't have children at home, uh, this will be important for you this morning, I think, because, you know, you're still parents. <laughs> and you know that, right? Um, and it's true that though the nature of how you parent has changed, and it will for you younger men too, for myself, uh, your vocation or your calling as a parent has not ended. It's still intact. Um, one of the things that, uh, that Proverbs seems to be a big fan of is generational connection. Like that generations would stay connected. So, for example, in Proverbs 17.6, the writer says this, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. And so right there you have sort of on display three generations who remain connected. Proverbs 20, 29 says this, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. You I heard an amen somewhere over there. Some of you take that very literally. It says nothing about men who are balding, but I think if we did a word study, we could find something about men who don't have any hair at all. So... Um, but for those of you who, uh, who no longer have children at home, I mean, it's true for you, it's true for, for all of us, that the call of parenting doesn't end when they cash the last tuition check, right? I mean, you're still called to be a father um, in a different way, maybe. The, the expression changes, but fatherhood is still very much a call um, in your life. For those of you without children at all, why is this important? Well, if you don't have any kids at all, why is it important? Well, um, you know, you, you might have kids one day, right? I mean, some of you hope to be parents one day, and so it never hurts to get ahead of things in your life, right? A little pre-parenting wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, the reality also is that uh, many, some of you uh, may never have biological children um, for whatever reason. Um, you may never have a child of your own biologically. However, if you're a member of a church, then in a way, it, it's not wrong to say that you really do have children. <laughs> um, children, as God describes them, or churches, as God describes churches, are meant to be big families. 
And that means that children in a church belong to us as men together. The next generation, as the Bible describes it, needs not only biological fathers, but the next generation needs spiritual fathers and spiritual older brothers as well. I just want you to know there's something here for all of us this morning. I don't want you to feel, no one should feel left out. We are all inclusive, right? I mean, you get breakfast here when you come and everything. We're all inclusive this morning. Although I did read, did you read that hot dogs cause cancer now? Anybody read that yesterday? I'm willing to chance it. I don't know about you, but I, I don't think I'm going to stop. So eat all the kolaches you want this morning. I might have le- uh, uh, more left over. Uh, um, Kit reminded me that it doesn't apply to kolaches because they're small. So, And it doesn't apply to anything eaten in the church because toxins can't get in the force field of God's house. So, um, I don't know. I think I read that somewhere. Uh, let's, uh, so let's read um, our really main text this morning, Proverbs chapter 23, verses 15 through 26. Let's read it together. Uh, the writer says this, My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Listen to your fathers who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth, do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. I have a few other Proverbs I want to read to you. I think I have three more listed on your um, handout this morning. Just read over those quickly. We'll stay in the main passage, but I just want to, I want, I wanted to give these to you for your reference. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29. The glory of young men, we just did that, is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. And then Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, I I read a story about uh, Winston Churchill a few months ago that has stayed with me. I thought it would be appropriate to share with you because it was about how much his own relationship with his father, Lord Randolph, I guess he had to call him Lord Randolph too, imagine that, um, how much it impacted him. From the time he was born, uh, Lord Randolph thought Winston, genuinely thought that Winston was mentally handicapped. He thought he was just not very smart. He thought he was deficient mentally. He rarely spoke to him. In fact, Churchill's own son would later write, the neglect and the lack of interest in him shown by his parents, were remarkable, even by the standards of that day for the upper crust. As early as possible, his dad had him shipped off to boarding school, and the letters that Winston sent home during that time uh, would break your heart. He, uh, he constantly pleaded for attention from them. He talked about how miserable he was. He, he begged them to come uh, visit him, and they never did, almost never. His father was doing a, uh, making a speech in the place where his boarding school was, um, one day and decided to kind of come over and see him. So he stopped by, and while he was there, he noticed that 
Winston had this vast collection of toy soldiers, and they were all arrayed in a battlefield formation. So Lord Randolph spent 20 minutes walking around the formation, sort of studying the scene, and at the end, he smiled. And Winston saw that he was pleased with him, and at the end, he asked Winston if he'd like to go into the army. And because, you know, Winston wanted to please his dad, he said, absolutely, absolutely, I'd love to do that. And later, he came, out to, fi- he came to find out his dad's real motive in asking the question. He wrote this years later. For years, I thought my father, with his experience and flair, had discerned in me the qualities of a military genius. In other words, when he saw his father, he thought he had, his father was saying, this is how, this is my, I see this in you, I'm proud of you. Then he says this, but I was told later they'd only come to the conclusion that I was not clever enough to go into law. And that provides the background for this quick anecdote. When he was a student at Sandhurst, a military college, Winston had a watch that his father gave him. And the watch fell off and landed in a stream with a deep pool. And so, you know, fearing his dad's displeasure, Winston took off all his clothes and he jumped in the pool to find the watch, but he couldn't find it. And so what he did next was he, uh, he um, arranged for the pool to be dredged, the whole thing. Still no watch. And so he then decided to pay 23 soldiers to dig a new course for the stream. And then he borrowed the school's fire engine to pump the pool dry. He found his watch. <laughs> and he sent it to London to have it repaired But all of that, just because he didn't think he could face telling his father that he had not pleased him once again. But somehow his father learned what had happened. He sent him a letter, and the letter that Winston shared called him shameful. It said he was not to be trusted. And he told him in the letter that his his younger son, Jack, his younger brother, Jack, was vastly superior. And Winston would later, later say, those words lacerated my soul. Even when I was, the author said this, even when Churchill was nearing the end of his own life, He could hear his father's voice. And his father's voice was always scolding him for some misdeed. At that point in his life, Lord Randolph had been dead for 50 years, for half a century. How important do you think is the love or the absence of love of a father? How important is the love of a father or the lack thereof? I mean, think about Churchill's life for a moment. Even with all that he accomplished, all that he did. I mean, great figure in the 20th century, right? Not all of his accomplishments could quiet the voice of his own dad telling him that he would never measure up. You know, I have a friend that many of you know here, sometimes uh, visits us on Tuesday morning Bible studies. He may or may not be here this morning. And his favorite question to ask people, and sometimes he'll do this to people he has just met, His favorite question to ask is, were you loved well by your parents? Just cuts through the college football talk, you know, (laughs) goes right for it. Were you loved well by your parents? And the reason he asked that question is because he knows how deeply our answer to that question shapes who we are. And I want to begin this morning by just saying this. It would be hard to overestimate the influence that God has given you in making you into a father. It would be hard to overestimate the influence that God has given you in calling you to be a father. We see that in the Bible. We see it throughout the Proverbs. You know, a great portion of the Proverbs, if you read back, is framed in the voice of a father as he addresses his son. Why is it framed that way? 
Because that is the normal way that God has ordained wisdom to be passed on from one generation to the next, from a father to a son, from a mother to a daughter, from a father to a daughter. I don't want to overcomplicate things this morning, but I do want you to see very quickly in our next few minutes, and I want to launch you into a good discussion this morning. That's my goal. I want you to see four practical, very simple things that Proverbs reiterates about being godly fathers, and here they are. Four things this morning about being a godly, wise father. Number one, Proverbs would have us start with the right perspective. Start with the right perspective on your children. Number two, aim at the heart. Start with the right perspective on your children. Number two, aim at the heart. Aim at the heart. Number three, walk with your child as you train your child. Be willing to walk with your child, with a child, as you train a child. And then finally this morning, model godliness, but above all else, repentance. Model godliness, and yet above all else, repentance. Just in case you didn't get them, I see a lot of people writing them the same one more time. Start with the right perspective on children. Aim at the heart. Walk with your child as you train a child. And finally, model godliness, but above all else, repentance. Let's look at those in turn. Number one, start with the right perspective. What is the right perspective? Well, this may sound silly or insulting this morning, but the perspective on the perspective of the Bible on children really is unequivocal. <laughs> children, when they are given, are always a blessing of God. Uh, children, when they are given, are always a blessing from God. Okay? Um, always. That means they're a blessing when there's, you know, if you have young kids when there's spaghetti all over the floor. <laughs> it means they're a blessing at this church when they're screaming during worship and they're wallowing somewhere on the ground trying to figure out how to get out. Um, it means that they're a blessing when they're having meltdowns in the grocery store, in public. All right? Children are a blessing from God. And we need to say that up front because experientially, if you are right now in the thick of parental chaos, like I am, I have four at home that are eight and under, it's hard to remember that they're a blessing. It really is. Sometimes it feels like they're an intrusion. Really. I mean, or it feels like they're an obstacle. Got to get them down so that I can have my time at night. Like, the op- like they're, they're an obstacle at night when I get home so that I can have from 8 to 10 to myself, right? Or maybe sometimes it feels like they're a project that someone's given you that's not going very well, right? <laughs> the Bible says that children, more than anything else, are a gift uh, 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 that God has given. They're a gift that God has given that belong to him um, for all intents and purposes, but that he has given to us to love and to oversee. Proverbs assumes that being a father, even a spiritual father, that being a father is a privilege. Now, it also assumes that children are rebellious and that they are foolish <laughs> and that they are a handful, and that's why there's so much information on training. But it does say, it does assume that children are a blessing from God. Second, aim at the heart. In your parenting, aim at the heart. How many times, look at our main passage this morning, how many times in our main passage do you see the word heart mentioned? Look there. Just in those, I guess, 9 or 10 or maybe 11 verses, how many times do you see the word heart mentioned? Anybody got a count for me? Yeah, it wasn't a rhetorical question. It's an assignment. Look down. How many times do you see the word heart mentioned there? Four, five, three. 
You know, it's hard because one says inmost being, and that's like soul, but the same thing. It's at least five, okay? At least four or five. Um, so verse 15 says, my son, if your heart is wise. Verse 19, hear my son and be wise and direct what? Your heart in the way. And then my favorite of all the verses, and I'm glad we ended here this morning. Verse 26 says, my son, what does it say? Give me your heart. I love that phrase. My son, give me your heart. Now, I mean, you may know this, but the heart in the Bible is the center of a person. So the heart of your child, it's your son's personality. It's your daughter's um, giftedness and desires. It's their intellect and emotions. The heart is what makes you, you. And the heart is what makes your particular son or daughter or child them. Such that Proverbs can say in another place, above all else, above everything else you do, guard your heart. Because from it flow all the springs of life. The Bible believes that the heart is the most important part of, what, of who a person is. So just for a moment, I just want you to think about some of your own goals for your children. Okay? Just reflect on that for a moment. I mean, your kids could be older and out of the house. What are some of the goals that you have for your children? If you don't have a child, what are goals that you think you might have as a father? <laughs> what are goals that you think you might have? What counts as success for you? And I can tell you what some of mine are. Educational opportunities. Now, I don't think this way already, but I, I could see wanting them to have a satisfying job one day. Yeah, I, I want them to be achievers. I feel that in my own soul. Um, becoming financially secure. Maybe really, and this isn't a big, maybe it's their happiness and their health. But, uh, chances are you have a lot of different goals um, for your kids. None of those are bad things. But the number one aim for a child from a father, according to Proverbs, should be a heart that is directed towards wisdom. The way that Jesus puts it is a heart that loves God above all else and that loves a neighbor as himself. Now look, if you, um, if you asked your child what they think that you want most from them, what do you think he or she would reveal? Like if, you, if someone else went and said, you know, you know Pat, what, um, Pat, one of Pat's daughters, what, what do you think your father really wants from you? What do you think they would say? It's a dangerous assignment, right? Especially if you have young kids, because they're just going to go to whatever you say the most. Like my, I think mom would say, my dad wants me to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> or stop wrestling. I think that's probably one they would, they would hear. But listen to me. What strikes me about the writer of Proverbs here is that he explicitly tells his son what he, most, what he wants most for him. He tells his son, what I want is your heart. Do you see that? He says, give me your heart. He doesn't say, give me your report card <laughs> or give me your yearly income totals. Give me your achievements. He says, give me your heart. And what the father of Proverbs is saying above all else is that I want you. I want you. I want to know you, and I want to know you personally in the deepest way possible. That's my calling, to know you and to love you. We could say this, that godly and wise fatherhood means getting to know and to love the kids that God has given you and not the kids that you wish you had. 
It's getting to know the children that he's really given you and not the ones that you wish they would be. You know, it's probably true that you will have seasons of, um, you know, being a dad. You'll have seasons of feeling closer to your children than others. And it's probably true, um, even though we would never say this, if you have multiples, that you will feel closer to different kids at different times. It may even be true that you just sort of get one of your children better than others. It just comes more naturally. What do you do then? What do you do then if, if, if just sort of getting one is easier than the other? I think Proverbs would really say this to us. Work harder at the other ones. I do. Work harder at the other ones. The easy thing to do is to gravitate towards a child that comes easiest to us. But a good father is constantly seeking the heart of all of his children. All of them. Those that are easy and those that are also hard. You know, one of the questions on your handout this morning is this. What are the ways to know the heart of anyone, but especially a child? What are the ways that you can know the heart of a child? Well, I'd love for you to get to that this morning. I know you may be at tables where no one has children. <laughs> but then, so what is the way to get to know the heart of anyone? I'd love for you to get to that one because I'd love for you to pull your wisdom and share the different ways that you've done this with different kids. How have you experientially, practically aimed to know and to love and to direct the deepest part of who your kids are? Aim for the heart. Number three, walk with them as you train them. Walk with them as you train them. So Proverbs says explicitly, train up a child, but really in our passage this morning, we see the father doing it in the 12 verses. I just want you to notice, you don't get this because I didn't include it all, but he talks about all kinds of things. He does say, generally be wise, but then he talks about drunkenness in the passage, right? And then he talks about um, gluttony. Um, uh, verse 27, right after this one, he talks about sexuality. Um, he talks about uh, work ethic in another place. It's very clear that, the, that the, uh, the dad here is willing to go anywhere. You know, he's willing to talk to his child about um, anything that he thinks he's going to come across in his life. And I want you to know, too, that the picture that the Proverbs gives us of how this actually occurs from a father to a son is not a bedroom conversation. In other words, the vision is not that a father says to a son, let's have an important conversation now here at the end of the night. The actual context in which this occurs is the outworking of the Shema. So the Shema was um, a passage in Deuteronomy. It was the first thing that a child was called to learn and to memorize. And here's how it went. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Listen. You shall teach them diligently to your children. How? You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. That means when you sit down for a meal. When you're just hanging out at your house, when you walk by the way, when you're walking them to school, when you're, when you're going somewhere, when you're in the car driving with them, when you lie down and when you rise, they should be as frontlets between your eyes and they should be marks on your hand and it continues and continues. So here's a question. In the Old Testament, where did discipleship between a father and a son occur? Where did it occur? Where did it happen? What do you think? Any, any ideas? Yeah, good. During life. So the answer is every... There wasn't a wrong answer. <laughs> I, I, softball. Fastball here. It, it happened everywhere. 
The context for training a child was all kinds of places in all kinds of time. And it's, it's like the writer here is saying, look, you can't expect to train a child, to train the next generation by just telling them things. You have to move into their worlds. And you have to invite them into your world. And I think the bottom line for us here this morning is this. Never apologize. Never apologize for being closely involved in the lives of your kids. Don't apologize for that. Now look, I, I get right now that there's a lot of literature about we can do this, we can, we can do this in wrong ways. Like we are apt to break anything, even the good things. So yeah, you can be, a wrong, you can be uh, uh, involved in the lives of your kids in ways that are harmful. But, but it's a good thing. In fact, it is your job <laughs> as a father to be involved closely in the lives of your children. I remember um, uh, when I was working in high school, I messed up and uh, told my manager, and I tried to pass the buck and said, look, it, it wasn't, I don't think it was me. I think it was, you know, I didn't see it or whatever I said. And he looked at me, and he was so mad. And he was shaking. He said, that is your job, though. Whatever I miss doing, he looked at me and said, that is your job. And I said, oh, you know, I guess it is. <laughs> it's as if the Proverbs are saying to us, look, being with your kids, being close to them, discipling them, it is your job. It is your calling. There are a lot of things we can outsource in life. Loving our kids as fathers is not one of them. Martin Luther once wrote, he said, every church is a large family, and every family is a small church. So you know, you know what that makes you, right? It makes you the pastor. <laughs> it makes you the minister. Uh, you are the first pastor that God has ever given your kids. You are the first minister that God has given to your kids. And if you're like me and I you know, wear that title, that still feels overwhelming to me even at home. You know, one thing I've found helpful, especially when things are overwhelming in marriage and, uh, and, and, and parenting, is just to go back to the promises that I took at their baptism. I think it's extremely practical and helpful, especially when you're in the thick of it, because you're standing up there, you're taking the promises, chances are you're not really thinking about it. You're worried like if the, you know, if, if he's going to cry or she's going to cry and they're going to catch him. Is, you know, what's going to happen next? Does the gown look okay? Return to the promises. Here are the promises that if you're a part of this church, you made. Here's what they say. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon grace, not yourself, but upon the grace of God, that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example? That's the first one that you will pray with and for her. That you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's look, it's fancy language, but here's what it's saying. Do you promise, here are the promises you made. Back to the basics. Will you promise to walk with your children as a godly man? Will you do your best to do that? Will you pray with and for them? Anybody can do that. You don't have to be eloquent to do that. Will you pray with and for your children? And will you do your best to teach them about the God who made them and loves them? Will you do your best? Will you endeavor to do your best? 
That's the vows we took. Um, walk with them as you train them. I'd be remiss if I didn't say this this morning, I think, and I, I almost don't want to say it because it's not fair to give such little attention to it. But some of you may be thinking this morning, what, is, what if my best hasn't been good enough? Or this, what am I supposed to do with a child who wants nothing to do with me? What do I do with a child who is wayward? That's a painful question. It's a question that deserves a community of people, of men and friends, and not just a quick answer, but I don't want to ignore it. What do I do with a wayward child? What do you think you'd say to that? Here's what I think we do. We try to be the fathers that God has been to us in our own waywardness. We try to be the fathers that God has been to us in our own waywardness. And as we pray with our children, excuse me, for our child, we wait for him or her on the horizon. <laughs> you, you remember the, pro, the parable of the prodigal son, right? The father is waiting, <laughs> is looking out on the horizon, searching the horizon, hoping. We make a way for repentant prodigals to return home, whether they've ever really left home or not. You know, one of the promises that I cling to as a dad, especially when I get scared, and I get scared a lot about the future especially, one of the promises that I cling to is this, that God loves my kids more than I do. I mean, he does. God has promised that he will love them more than I will as their creator and their redeemer. Be the father that God has been to you in your waywardness and cling to his promises to love them, especially when you feel out of control as a dad. Finally, this morning, the fourth thing, now, model godliness and especially repentance. Look at me again at, uh, at verse 26. It just says this. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. So if you're looking in a Bible this morning, you'll notice that there's a footnote by the word observe because the word observe can also be translated a delight in. So it could say, um, you know, my son, give me your heart and delight in my ways. Either way, the bottom line of what the Father is saying is, Son, I want you to delight in becoming like me. I want you to take delight. Look, he's saying this, look at me as your model. Look at me as your model. Now, no pressure, but can you say that? Can you say to your own kids, delight in becoming like me? And I know that many of you are thinking this morning, well, no, I can't say that because I'm flawed, right? I mean, there's a lot of things I don't want them to become like in me. I'm a flawed man. Well, guess what? So was the writer of Proverbs. He was. It, when he says that, it cannot mean that in order for you to say that to a child, that you have to be perfect. It must mean that we can still be models for our kids. We can still be models for our kids even as broken men. Now, how can that be? Well, use your imagination for a moment. What is it? Think about this. What is it that marks a broken man as a man to be followed if it's not perfection? What is it that marks a broken man as a man to be followed if it's not perfection? It's godliness to some degree, no doubt. But there must be something in his life to account for his own failure. What could that be? Well, the Bible names it as repentance. It's repentance. 
It's a man who is willing to say, I'm sorry, even to his kids, and not just, I'm sorry, but to show that he means it by struggling for more of God's righteousness and more of God's grace in his own soul. Guys, that is the kind of men that our children need to see, not men who are devoted to holding on to the pretense of perfection. Men who are willing, even before their kids, to repent. Jack Miller, a noted Christian pastor, helped thousands of men and women better understand the gospel. He once said this. It was helpful for me. It may may or may not be for you. He wrote this. "The the, The most liberating moment, the most liberating moment is when you realize your children are going to have to forgive you for you being their parents. The most liberating moment is when you realize that your children are going to have to forgive you for being their parents. Now, what does he mean? Why is that liberating? It's liberating because it means that we can give up the facade of pretending that authority qualifies us as being perfect. And the quicker that we can stop equating perfection and authority, the quicker that we can actually embrace repentance as one of the greatest tools that God has given us as broken men to be fathers. We were eating dinner the other night as a family. My oldest son asked my wife a question at the table. The table's a real humbling moment for me, the dinner table, because it never goes as the visions that I have for a dinner with four kids. It's just a humbling moment in general. So I'm always on edge, frankly. I mean... um, and he asked her a question, excuse me, and um, then he took his, he asked her, she's, and she's answering the question, and he takes his plate as she's talking, just into the, into the dining room to, you know, just to, you know, what he's supposed to do to get rid of the plate, you know, and, but, it, but she's talking to him, and it just, it got all over me. Like, he's asked her a question, and it's so disrespectful not to listen to the answer, but just to sort of, you know, go on, and so he came back, and I assumed my position as the father. And I confronted him and said, son, that is extremely disrespectful. You ask your mom a question, sit there and listen to the answer. And these big droopy eyes, he said, but daddy, you do that all the time. (laughs) Ouch is right. (laughs) Man. And what I wanted to say was, uh, you know, my first thing was to be defensive and and to say, well, no, I don't. But he was right. (laughs) I mean, he was clearly right. My wife looked at me and said, yeah. And then my second, my second response was, of course, to deflect. That's the second, you know. Um, well, this isn't about me. It's about you. But, it, you know, it clearly was about me as well. And so I said, son, you're right. Will you, will you help me to do better? Will you, will you forgive me? And will you help me to be a better father um, in that? And at that moment, that little eight-year-old boy was a prophetic voice in my own life that God had given me to help me grow into the man that I was supposed to be. What Jack Miller meant, I think, by saying it's liberating um, to, come, to come to the conclusion in your own life that you're going to have to, uh, that your, your kids are going to have to forgive you for being their parents, is just saying this. Um, can you make space in your life to say, I'm sorry to your kids? Can you make space in your life for your kids to help parent you? <laughs> to help grow you up as well? I still remember in my own life, one of the most significant moments in my relationship with my own father, I still remember it was a moment when he came to me and he told me he was sorry for something. It stands out to me. It means a lot, and I still cherish it as important for us. We need to finish up this morning and kick you guys to your groups. Let me just, let me summarize one more time where we've been. 
Uh, number one, start with the right perspective. Children are gifts from God. Number two, aim for the heart. Aim to know and to love the child that God has given you, not the child you wish you had. <laughs> um, even, the heart, even the ones that don't come natural for you. Number three, walk with them as you train them. Go where they go. Go into their worlds. Invite them into your world. And then finally, model godliness, but most of all, repentance. I want to finish with a story um, that a pastor named Greg Thompson uh, told about his own dad. Greg is a pastor in Charlottesville, Virginia. If you've had students around UVA, uh, your own kids, then you may know who Greg is. He was an RUF campus minister there for a long time. And Greg tells a story about his dad named Bruce. And he says that Bruce, his dad, was a gifted carpenter and a gifted uh, handyman. And his dad's sort of fate, like ideal Saturday was, um, was to get up in the morning and to work on a, you know, a, a do-it-yourself project at, in the morning and then to spend the day um, watching college football with his kids, which sounds very ideal to me as well, honestly. Um, so in the mornings on Saturdays, he would teach Greg skills, um, uh, um, and they would repair things together. He would bring him in, and they would repair things together. And Bruce, his dad, had a golden hammer that was his prized possession. And that golden hammer had his initials engraved on it. And Greg says, he tells a story later when he's about my age, and he says that now he's a father, he recognizes how much his own father sacrificed just to bring him into those moments. And if you've ever tried to get anything done with your, you know, done that you wanted to get done, how much you sacrificed just to bring your little kids in. One morning, uh, Greg walked into the garage, and he noticed a second hammer lying next to his father's hammer. This new hammer had engraved initials on it, too. But when Greg looked more closely, he saw that the initials were his. Um, GT. And then Greg said this about the hammer. The hammer was not just a tool. It was an invitation. It was assurance that my participation in my father's work was not only tolerated, but desired. And not only desired, but provided for. I love that story. It's a beautiful picture of fatherhood, but especially the fatherhood of God. I mean, in Christ, God is the true father of your kids. But he has given them to you as an invitation to participate in his work of growing them. And your role in their lives is not only tolerated, it's desired. And it's not only desired, it's provided for. God himself has provided his own son in order to make you into a son. God has provided the one closest to his own heart in order to seek your heart, in order that you might say, yes, I have been loved well. I have been loved well. And so I know now what it is to love well the next generation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Uh, God, we pray by your grace, our humble reliance on you that you would you would help us to love well the next generation, help us to be good sons, good fathers. If we've had good dads, Father, help us to be thankful for them, to tell them that, to encourage them. Um, we pray, God, by your grace, that you would make us into the fathers that you have been for us, the fathers that you've called us to be. We pray for our children. Oh, God, would you, would you bring back the ones that are scattered? Would you help them to know and to love you all the days of their lives? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.